before I start the message today, I just want to give a little commercial here. If you missed the worship conference yesterday, you missed one of the most important worship conferences we've ever had. I cannot overstate that. Um, you need to watch it. You need to pay attention to it. I can ask you this question right now, and if you, when we sang that last song, let me ask you this question. Don't answer it out loud, but just think about this. What did you feel? Not just what did you sing, not just what did you understand, but what did you feel? You were talking about the depth of our sin and the incredible gift, the mercy of our Lord. We were talking about our continued sin and his continued pouring out of mercy. If you felt nothing, you should be worried. Because it's not just what's happening here today. It's not just what you're feeling at this moment. As this worship conference helps us understand, it's talking about really how we're living our entire lives. Cannot encourage you enough to watch that. If you are technologically challenged, uh, you can't possibly go online and do this. Hey, I'm not putting you down. I'm just telling you, if that's you, come talk to us. We'll turn it on for you. You can watch it, you know, during the week at the church office. Well, gee, almost started preaching a different sermon there. Let me uh, continue in this sermon. We're on the road to the kingdom, which, by the way, some of you probably were listening to Zach thinking, hey, you know, have Pastor and Zach been talking? He's like, no, we've just been consulting the same word, and we've been consulting the same God. And what we find here is on this road to the kingdom is that, you know, it was the bright sunshiny beginning. God made everything good and he made humanity very good. And then he made everything especially good for humanity. He made it good. He made humanity very good. And he made everything especially good for humanity. And all of this was so that we, would, we, could, we could have fulfilling lives, but fulfilling lives are not fulfilling lives unless we're in a right relationship with God and a right relationship with each other. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And then of course, along comes, along comes sin. Along comes sin, and as we talked about the past couple of weeks, how sin enters into the picture and, and it's not a surprise to God. God's not like, oh, where'd that sin stuff come from? I didn't make that. No, he, he knew. But God knew that this was something that had to happen, but he had a plan. And so now we're Coming to this text and, you know, Romans, the first couple of chapters of Romans to me are the most depressing parts of the Bible. If you are feeling like you just want to get a good depression on, read Romans 1, 2, and 3. It's very, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And, you know, it's interesting because it's really helping us like understand from God's perspective how things got to where they are. You know, most of the time when we 
if we don't really think about stuff, we just think this is how things have always been. It's why I always talk about context, and if we don't pay attention to context, we'll just import our own context anywhere. Anywhere around the world, anywhere in time. It's just like the world's always been like this. We were kind of joking about this outside um, with um, one of our more senior members. And uh, I said, you know, I've never known a world where there, were, where there wasn't air travel. And this person said, well, I did. But think about that. Think about things that you just assumed were always there. You know, like, if you're my age, did you, did you picture your parents watching TV when they were your age? When they were, like, four or five years old, did you picture them doing like you might have done, like I know I did every Saturday morning, you know, get down there, and you had to get up early because my mom was going to give us chores to do, and we knew we weren't going to get to watch Saturday morning cartoons unless we watched the ones at 6 a.m. So we got there, and we watched them, and then there were the blessed days when we were sick, and mom felt bad enough for us that she didn't give us chores, so we got to watch all Saturday morning, Right? And we just assume that that's what our parents did. We just assume that's what our grandparents did. You know, think about what kids are growing up today with, assuming that's how it's always been, never thinking about how things became the way they are. And so we just kind of live in this world and we just assume this is how it's always been. But what we're going to look at today, we're going to look at this text where it's, if, that, if that's what we think, then we'll, we'll never figure out how to get out of this. You see, because our world, the world that we live in today, we, we live in a world that continues to live out the confusing consequences of rejecting God. Yeah, the re, we, we read about in the Bible that the rejection happened a long time ago. But because we don't really know how we got to where we are, the, the situation is even more confusing. We, we don't know what is right, what is wrong. We don't know what is true, what is false. And we just assume it's always been this way. And so Paul's writing this letter to the church at Rome. And, and this is a church at Rome that, that, that he, was, he, was, he, he uses the word eager. He was he was eager to write to them because he was eager to go see them. He, he had never been to Rome. He had never been to this church when he writes this letter. And he's so eager. He's like, he's, he's so excited that he gets this opportunity. He knows people in the church, but he, he doesn't know the church as a whole. And so he writes, right after he says, I'm so eager, and here's why. For I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You might go, that doesn't sound depressing to me. Not yet. This is the happy part. This is Paul saying, this is why I want to tell you. This is why I want to write to you. I want to explain to you what God has revealed to me, and it's so real, it's so exciting. I want to let you know. And so 
He wants to share with them the gospel. And he has three reasons. First he says, I'm not ashamed. Then he says, because it's the righteousness of God. I, I myself can be guilty of this too. Where, where I don't feel like, oh, like, oh, should I, should I share the gospel? Should I share the gospel? And on, on, on Wednesday night, we were like, you know, I was making, I think, very strongly this point that Paul's making. Why would you be ashamed? Why would you be ashamed of the power of God to salvation? Why would you be ashamed of the righteousness of God? Why would you be ashamed of his mercy and his grace? That's what Paul's saying. I'm not. Paul's saying, I'm not. I'm not ashamed. This is awesome. But what he does know is before he can help them appreciate the good news, in fact, the great news, he has to help them understand the problem, the situation. It's only great news if we understand what the problem is. It's only good news if we understand what we were saved from, what we were delivered from. And so he has to take that dark journey. So we come to verse 18 in chapter 1. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The big point here, it's a simple one. Sin makes God angry. Sin makes God angry. Paul goes immediately from, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and talking about the righteousness, and talking about the, the faith, and salvation, to, to then immediately give his third major point, which is for the wrath of God. And he's about to launch into what this means. A lot of churches don't like to talk about the wrath of God. And one of the reasons is because they misunderstand it. They think that the wrath of God is somehow like opposed to the love of God. And they don't understand that, no, God is love. The Bible never says God is wrath, ever. They're not equal. So they cannot be opposites. But the Bible does say God is love. Which means that if God is love, wrath must be somehow an expression of his love. It cannot be an expression of anything else. Not if he is the perfectly good God, the God who is love. And so we have to keep that in mind. And, and those of us who have kids, um, when, we're, when we're trying to be good parents and not selfish parents, which all of us probably have our moments, but when we're trying to be good parents, and, and we, we see our, our kids do something, right? And they do something that we know either right now or in the long term is going to be harmful to them. It kind of makes us angry. 
We, we don't just care about them. And, and sometimes that comes out when we're talking to them, trying to help them understand how serious that is. You know, I remember the, the first time I was on the playground with my daughter, my eldest daughter, Kiyomi, and I was on the playground with her and, and uh, this, this little bit older girl, Kiyomi was probably like three or four, and this little bit older girl was kind of like, kind of bossing the playground. I made it real clear that you weren't, you weren't the boss of my daughter on this playground. Didn't have to say anything, just gave the look. But you know, it's like, go ahead. Try what you're doing to these other kids. Try that on my daughter. Go ahead, please, make my day, right? Fortunately, she didn't and I didn't get arrested. Um, but. But the point is, is like, you want to hurt my kid? My love will protect my kid. But what's really hard is when what's hurting your kid is your kid. Because then what do you do? And God's, his wrath, his anger, it's a component of his love because he's like, doing it to yourself. Yeah, we get the picture of, of the serpent in the garden. But notice, even there, it's Adam and Eve. They're owning that situation. And by the way, if it's always some external factor, where was the serpent when Cain was sinning? No, he has this anger, he has this wrath. It's not the absence of his love. In fact, it's an expression of his love. I want you to see also how it says that his wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. The text doesn't say his wrath is revealed against men. It says about, it's against their ungodliness and their unrighteousness. Humanity is made in his image. His wrath isn't, isn't directed towards humanity made in his image, but their ungodliness and their unrighteousness. Remember when God was talking to Cain? Man, wouldn't it be awesome if before you did really stupid, sinful things, if God would just say like, dude, Come on, think about it. Look, you know what to do. You know how to take care of this. If you don't, you're going to sin. And it's, gonna, it, it's not going to be good. And it's going to take control. But that's what he does with Cain. But if you remember, he talked about how sin was, was like contrary to him. It's like, I made you in my image. Sin is contrary to you. It's not you, but it's you. And we find here what's going to continue is that sin is rebellion against God and against the things of God. It's, 
It's a rejection of God. It's a rejection of, of all that is good. And we've, we've even seen before um, in Genesis the connection between God's creation and, and his character. God is good. Creation is good. And then here we see the corruption of it. And he ultimately, Paul ultimately concludes that there's no excuse. There's no excuse for not knowing God. None. And so he's, he brings us to this, this place that's, again, it's, it's, it's bleak. There seems to be no hope. It is indeed all our fault. God made us to be able to know him, and he revealed himself to us. He continues, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. There's so many different roads that this passage could lead us down. So many things that if I had like tons of time to tell you about and talk about, discuss with you, we would. So I'm doing everything I can to stay focused on the, 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 the text for today and the message for today. But the first thing you need to see is that, is that God's wrath is not expressed in punishing us. His wrath is not expressed like some of the gods of old, like throwing lightning bolts. No. His wrath is expressed, as it says in verse 24, God gave them up. He gave them up. He let them go. God is perfect, if God is good, if as we saw in Genesis that his presence in Genesis is in Eden, the farther we get from that, the farther we get from his presence, the darker it becomes, the more we become lost. Think if you were, if you were born in a dark world and all you knew was darkness. If you were born, say, in a cave and all you knew was the cave, that's all you knew. You wouldn't even know there was anything else. Well, you were going to live a certain way. You need to do certain things. And even though we were not created in a cave, even though humanity started with the best possible way to start. God giving us up to our lusts. 
creates a darker and darker world. People assume this is how it's always been. It's always been this way. And the Bible's saying, no, it's not true. The big thing we see here, though, is, is that sin, it is a rejection of God, but it's not a rejection of the need for God. Those are two different things. They're rejecting God. They're rejecting this, 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 is, this good, all-powerful, loving God. But they still have a need for God. Oh, maybe they don't want to call what they're going to fill that need with God. Maybe they're going to call it something else. But there's a need there. And it says, it says here um, in verse 25, it sums it up and then it unpacks it a little bit later. But it says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Later on it's going to talk about, you know, they, they, they formed, you know, idols. They worshiped nature and not the one who made nature. But there's still within them the need for God. You know, we talk about this a lot, that, that, that this has always been a part of human thinking, but it's become very dominant in, in recent times. Anytime anybody tells you like, oh, this is new, it's not new. Um, it's been around, it's just become more dominant. And this, this view of, of feeling like that, that existence has no purpose, that we're just going to live and die, that even all of that that we see, not just the buildings and, and our history and, and human history and human civilization, not just that, but everything is going to eventually disappear. That's, that's the, the view of science. Our sun is going to go supernova. We'll all be long dead by then, but it, it's going to happen. And all of this gets erased as though it never existed. It's pretty depressing. It's pretty bleak. And even people who believe that don't want to believe it. Even people that, that have rejected a God who loves them and forgives them and wants to fellowship with them, they still want something. And they're searching. Sin is just the rejection of God. We cannot get rid of the need for God. God put it in us. He put it in our DNA. But what we see here is that the farther we go, it leads even farther away. And we've been talking about the road to the kingdom and we're talking about where the road to the kingdom leads. It leads to the kingdom of God. It leads to being in a relationship with God, a right relationship with God, different from Adam and Eve, because now God will have, have, have saved us and redeemed us and made us new and given us the Holy Spirit so we can experience God in ways that Adam and Eve could only dream of. That's where that's leading, the perfect society the good society, the kingdom. But what we're seeing here is what happens on the road to free will. 
the road to us getting to self-determine, us getting to, you know, make up all of our plans. Even if we still believe in God, it's still about us. Where does it lead? It leads farther and farther away from God. If we have any semblance of order, the order is going to be because we create rules, we create rituals, we create laws for our society which are going to change. They're going to change time to time. But all they're doing is masking what Romans 1 is talking about. This is where it leads farther and farther away from God. But just like we haven't lost the need for God, we haven't lost the need for, for, for the relationship that comes with our relationship with God and the relationships that come with our relationship with others. What makes relationships good, that comes from God. And the farther we get away from it, the more we are incapable of having those kind of relationships with each other. Verse 26 says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. You know, here's, here, here's the place, typically, it's not going to happen here. In fact, something very different is going to happen here. But here, here's the place typically where, you know, a pastor, a preacher might make a really strong statement about how the Bible is very clear that homosexuality is a sin. This is where, you know, you, you, you may have this, you know, this kind of nice little thing we talk about, you know, um, you know love the sinner, hate the sin. Well, I think we missed the point. I think we missed the point on two counts. First of all, why is God talking about this? Why is Paul writing this? Because he realizes the farther and farther we get away from God, that he sees that sin is a destruction of God's design and purpose for the family. In the Bible, there's not sex over here and family over here. In the Bible from Genesis chapter 2, family, sex, husband, wife, together, that's his plan. We separate them even as Christians, as two separate things, unrelated, disconnected. Paul's saying, look, this is what it's going to do. It's going to lead to the, ultimately to the destruction of the family. Later on, he's going to start listing all these different things that, that, that happen. All these things that are going to result, these attitudes. And I'm going to tell you, if your family is characterized, if you read that list and you go, wow, did 
Paul have a you know, camera in my house growing up? It sounds a lot like it. But this ultimately what this is about is not what we want it to be about. That God had a design for sex. He had a purpose for sex. He had a symbol that sex was. And it was connected to the family. And the family, as we've talked about repeatedly, was integral, is integral to God's plan. And I don't have time to go, you know, kind of unpack all of that. But we certainly can see the big contribution that we saw from Deuteronomy 6 was that the, the family, the home, that's where God's truth was passed down from generation to generation. You know, they had the temple. Later on, they had the synagogues. They had places where you could, you could learn. But the primary place of learning was the, the thousands, the tens of thousands, even the millions of homes where God's truth was not just being taught, not just making kids recite Bible verses, but being lived. Children getting to see parents live out the faith. That impressed on their minds along with learning the scriptures. It's, it was going to carry the covenant from generation to generation to generation. It's huge. And I was talking with John and Chris on Wednesday, and I've, I don't usually do this, but I think I'm going to anyways. I don't usually take these side trips, but I think it's important that I do, because I think this is one of the clear scriptures that, that says what the, Bible, what the Bible believes, what the Bible teaches is God's truth. And so, hang with me for a minute. Because I want to address what I think is, is one of the great tragedies. One of the great tragedies in our church that we, that we see in these verses. You see, the Bible is not surprised when sinners sin. The Bible doesn't ever act like God is like, oh, wow, sinful people doing sinful things. That's crazy. Where'd that come from? No, it's always like that's expected. Yes, it's a tragedy when sinners sin, but it's not an unexpected tragedy. The tragedy is how Christians respond to people who sin. That's the tragedy. More and more in our society, we're talking about these, you know, issues, LGBTQ and, and, and all of these issues that come up. How do we respond? How are you responding? Well, sadly, the stereotype among Christians, especially Bible-believing Christians, is they simply judge. 
it's wrong. The Bible says it's wrong, it's wrong. And they end it there. Some go the other way. Some go, it's okay. It's okay. It's all good. You know, as long as, you know, we're not hurting one another, it's all good. It's fine. So they condone. And then the third, which may be the truer one, which is also the saddest one, is they ignore it. And they don't just ignore the issue, they ignore the people. I want you to think about this. It's not just ignoring the issue, but it's ignoring the people. Where in the Bible does Jesus say we get to ignore any group of people? In fact, who does he say we should pay the most attention to? Well, maybe he doesn't say it. What, who did he pay the most attention to? What was he accused of? He was accused of being friends with tax collectors and prostitutes. He was accused of being unclean because he hung around the unclean. Hmm. Kind of different. He wasn't ignoring them. But let me just tell you too, he wasn't just condoning either. He never condoned. You never find Jesus condoning sin. What you find Jesus doing all the time is, is loving. It's when, when, we, when we think about what Jesus did, and, and I love the phrase, and we used to sing this song, which I really, really liked. Not the hymn, but a new song. But it was called Jesus, Friend of Sinners. Jesus, Friend of Sinners. But see, Jesus, he was the best friend of sinners. You know why? Because he didn't just meet people where they were. He didn't just meet people in their sin. He refused to leave them there. See, we have been caught up in, in the world's ideas of, of our choices. Our choices are we love people and agree with them, or we hate people and disagree with them. Those are our only two choices. I'm so glad Jesus didn't say those are the only two choices. I just think about what would happen? What would happen if we, if we certainly loved everyone, but especially loved this particular community the way we're called to love everyone else? People who are caught up in the gender identities. What would happen? Well, if we're grounded in God's word, if we have his Holy Spirit in our lives, I, here's what I think would happen. We'd listen to them. We'd listen. We'd be a friend. In listening, 
we're going to hear their wounds. We're going to hear what's broken. And what will you do with the love of Jesus Christ when you know someone's hurt and someone's broken? We'll share the gospel for sure. What would happen? You know, and, and I'm not talking about this just because it's the kind of cool thing, popular thing to talk about. I'm talking about this because here's what I actually believe. Not just with this particular issue that's, that's facing us, not with just this particular community, often who feels like they're, they're outsiders. But this has to do with us. Because last time I checked my own heart, I got a bunch of garbage in there. I got things I'm still struggling with. And I'm going to guess, same is true for you. And some of those things you know, and some of those things you don't know. Some of those things you see, and some of those things you can't see yet. What do I expect from you when you know how imperfect I am? And what should you expect from me when I know how imperfect you are? Here it is. This is the bigger point that guides us back to that other point. Here's what I expect from you. Love me to holiness. Love me to holiness. If you've kind of drifted off, if you've fallen asleep, you have to hear this. This is what the church is. We love one another to holiness. We don't just love aimlessly, as Zach was talking about, pointing our worship wherever and shooting whatever we care to love. We love to holiness. We never forget that God is a holy God and he's called us to be holy. And he's empowered us with this love. When you see my faults, don't just let them go. Love me to holiness. And I'll do the same for you. What happens? What happens when we embrace that, when we understand that? How does that change our church? How does that change us from the Sunday crowd that shows up, does its thing, goes home, doesn't think about anybody anymore? It's radically different. It's radically different. Love me to holiness. I'll love you to holiness. And of course, as again, Zach reminded us, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't make you holy. I can't even love you the way you need to be loved for that holiness. This is why 
part of what every Sunday morning worship gathering should be. Part of every time we gather together as in, in study of God's word. There should be a feeling of being just, just helpless before God to do the things that he's asked us to do. To not just love one another perfectly, but to love each other towards perfection. It's more than just preaching holiness to people. Some people need holiness preached to them. That's how you're going to love them. Sometimes, you know, raising my kids, love was like, I'm going to tell you right now what you need to know. And sometimes it's like, calm down, you know. This is how you're going to learn this. This is how you're going to grow. I know some people, and it's why I don't like to talk about these things on a Sunday morning, because I don't have time to unpack them as far as, as I'd like. But I know some people, some Christians will be saying like, oh, oh so, so you're saying we should just you know, ignore people's sin. No, it's opposite of what I'm saying. Opposite of what I'm saying. I'm just saying you don't lead off with that. And you don't ever get to it unless God's love takes you there. Because guess what? Maybe you're not the person. Maybe God needs, he's going to use 137 different people in someone's life to help them come to that point. And you get to play the role of number 123. You good with that? Because if you always got to be the superstar, if you got to be always the guy who closes the deal, and if it doesn't work, you're going to just force it. That's how we've gotten into this problem. And I know people who are kind of on the pro, you know, gender identity, you know, all the transitions that are going on. I know if any of them are listening, they might be upset because they might be saying, wait, 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 you're still calling my sexual identity a sin and yeah I am but I want you to know this and even though we're talking about this particular issue I want you to know this about any of your sins and I would it would be awesome if I knew this the same way that you would feel about me and my sins That I will love you better. I will love you better than anyone else who says they love you. And I will love you better, not because of me and my ability to love you, not because of my holiness, but because of Christ in me and because of his Holy Spirit. You see, it's because I believe in the perfect son of God. And it's because I believe in his Holy Spirit has transformed my life and is continuing to transform me. It's because I believe his word is unfailing that you can trust my love. Not because of me, but because of what I believe. See, this love's not based on whether I agree with you or not. This love's not based on whether I, I like you or whether you like me. In fact, you may hate me. You may see me as an enemy. You may call our church a hate group. 
And you know what? If you do, I know exactly how to treat you. Not because I've thought it up in my wonderful brain, but because God's word tells me what to do when people think I'm their enemies. And it says, I'm going to love you. Jesus didn't say, love your enemies except, and then let you fill in the blank. That's what we want it to say. I'm not perfect. We're not perfect. Our church is not perfect. But I want to say, the road to the kingdom, us becoming more perfect, is when is when people are coming. We're interacting with people who are in, just caught up in every lifestyle possible. I told you I loved the church we were working at in Texas when we merged with this other church. There were more tattoos in that church, you know, on like just one person. But just everybody. We had a guy in the church, his nickname was Tattoo Bobby. We had people from all different lifestyles, so many people having, having different stories, coming together in the process of becoming more like Christ. See, this is what I'm convinced. Not just people caught up in this, these gender identity issues. Not just that community. But I'm convinced everyone else needs to see. But certainly, especially this community. They need to see authentic Christian community where they see God's love lived out in a way that imperfect people are loving imperfect people to holiness. Imperfect people loving imperfect people to holiness. Only possible. Only possible. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Only possible because of the grace and mercy of God. And I know some people on the Christian side are like, well, you know, if they'll, if they'll clean up their act, if they will act like the rest of us, they can come. I'm sorry. It's not a prerequisite. People caught up in, in just different kinds of sin, their, their big issue is, wait, 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 what you're saying is, if I come to Christ, I have to give up this identity. Uh, yeah. In fact, if all of you are doing it right, if all of you are doing it right, you did the same thing. Your identity is in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Your identity is not caught up in anything else. It's easy to point fingers at other people. It's easy to say like, oh, your identity is caught up in this, your identity is caught up in that. But what about us? Is your identity, is it, is it, is it caught up, centered, focused, overwhelmed in the person of Jesus Christ? And is that real? Is that evident?
Let me just finish this up here. Verse 28 says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. By the way, this Wednesday, we're going to go a little more closely at this list. So if you want to feel uncomfortable, please, please join us. But the big point for this morning is simply what we've already seen. Sin feeds on itself and eventually consumes itself. Cain was told the wild beast is crouching at your door. Once you unleash it, it will consume you. And the last point here, he says, though they know God's righteous degrees, decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. And this is leading into next week's sermon, which is simply this. The most dangerous sins often are the hidden ones. And the one that's hidden here is how we give approval to people who sin. We give approval to sin. We might say, I don't do those things. But we support people doing things. It's the hidden sin. We'll talk more about this next week. It is the challenge for, for us today. It's something that as we explore, you can ask yourself, are there ways that I actually approve and support the sin of others? Well, I warned you, this is a kind of a look down this dark path, this dark journey, but I love that right before this message we sang that song, His Mercy is More. His mercy is more. No matter how dark it is, no matter how lost we seem, no matter how it seems like there's no way out, His mercy is more. And as we pray and close this time, pray that you, th that you think upon God's love and God's mercy that's continuously poured out on us and then how that helps us understand his greatness.